Hey, a little bit before I get started. This is the second to last Coffee with Jeff episode. In two weeks, it'll be over. I'll be back next year with a new podcast. I'll have more information about that at the end of today's show. Now let's get on with it. These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Greetings. Good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Coffee with Jeff, the podcast in which I find a subject I would like to know more about and then force that knowledge onto you, the podcast subscriber. This is episode 233. There once was a man who took a part in a secret government experiment that involved mind-altering drugs. That led to him writing one of the most classic novels of all time. Before he was 30 years old, he wrote two classic novels. But of all the things he did, he said the one thing he was most proud of was a bus. He took a group of friends across the country and back. They were known as the Merry Pranksters. The group went on a quest to freak out America and to introduce the squares to LSD. Today I have the story of the amazing Ken Kesey. Beginning in the late 1940s and going into the 50s, there were a group of people who called themselves the Beats, and they started what became known as the Beat Generation. A decade later, the hippie movement was happening with its folk and rock music, peace, love, and of course, drugs. In between the Beats and the hippies, there was Ken Kesey. It's strange for me to think about that at the same time the Beatles were playing on the Ed Sullivan Show, Ken Kesey was getting ready to introduce the world to psychedelic drugs. Ken and his friends were known as the Merry Pranksters, and they had nicknames such as Sir Speed Limit, Stark Naked, Sometimes Missing, Hardly Visible, Zonkers, and Anonymous. They weren't beats, and they weren't hippies. They were something, well, in between. Now, the fascination Kesey had with psychedelic drugs began with a secret government experiment that led to one of the best-selling books of all time. But before we get there, how about a quick look at Ken Kesey? Ken was born on September 17, 1935, to a dairy farmer in Colorado. When he was young, the family moved to Springfield, Oregon. At an early age, Ken loved to be on the stage. With his younger brother, they began putting on magic shows. He was a ventriloquist and took drama in school. For most of his years in school, he would put on plays, always casting himself in the lead role. He was a big guy, intelligent, funny, and a showman. In high school, Ken was a champion wrestler. After high school, he attended the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communications on a football scholarship. It was there he eloped with his high school sweetheart, Norma Faye Haxby. Ken later commented about the importance of Faye on his life. Without Faye, I would have been swept overboard by notoriety and weird dope-fueled ideas, and flower child girls with beaming eyes and bulbous breasts. In college, he switched from football to wrestling and was very successful. He almost qualified to be in the Olympic wrestling team, but a serious shoulder injury ended that. 
Kesey graduated from the University of Oregon with a B.A. in Speech and Communication in 1957. His life changed when he took part in a psychedelic drug experiment in what was later discovered to be a CIA-financed study called Project MKUltra, a highly secretive military program at Menlo Park Veterans Hospital. It was to study the effects of psychedelic drugs like LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, cocaine, and others on people allegedly to see if these drugs could be sprayed on the enemy during wartime or to be used for brainwashing and psychological torture. They started these experiments on soldiers, then moved on to college students. Ken took notes of the experiments and watched the effects it had on others. He and some of his friends thought that some of the drugs they were given were pretty great, but they didn't want them for good times and parties. They believed these drugs were a gateway to be enlightened. These drugs could be life-changing. So the group began to seek out LSD. The government had been trying to create a weapon, but these young adults found a better use. Once the drug trials were over, Kesey, who had just become a father, took a night job at the same hospital in the psychiatric ward. He was an orderly who began to observe patients. When things got slow, he would take the opportunity to write and draw. Every once in a while, he would take acid in an attempt to see the world through the eyes of the people he was looking after. One night, while on peyote, he had a vision. He imagined a mental ward being seen through the eyes of a patient, a large Native American who never spoke and pretended to be deaf. The story featured a nurse who ruled the ward with absolute authority and little medical oversight, and a newcomer to the mental ward, who Kesey modeled after himself. He got the name for the book from a children's rhyme that he used to hear from his grandmother. It went like this. Vintry, mintry, country corn, apple seed and apple thorn. Wire, briar, limber lock, three geese in a flock. One flew east, one flew west, and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Now, while he took a lot of notes of the patients he looked after, he would later say that all the characters in this new book were entirely fictional. Soon after the book's publication, a newspaper story read, Another February book to watch for is Ken Kesey's first novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a tale laid in a mental institution. Kesey is being hailed by Jack Kerouac, a fellow wrestler, as a great new American novelist. The book almost instantly became a worldwide bestseller. Soon after the book's release, Kesey returned to Oregon and lived in a small cabin ready to research his next book. At the time, Oregon had the highest suicide rate in the country, and Ken was interested to know why. He ended up with a 600-page book that he called Sometimes a Great Notion that was published in 1964. While One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is more famous, many critics consider sometimes a great notion, Kesey's magnum opus. The story involves an Oregon family of loggers who cut and procured trees for a local mill in opposition to unionized workers who were on strike. Ken Kesey wasn't even 30 years old and he wrote two classic books, novels that are still thought very highly of today. The book's especially great notion drained him. He needed to do something different. 
He had an idea that came to him a year earlier after he and his family had driven to New York to see the Broadway play of the book Cuckoo's Nest starring Kurt Douglas. On the way home, though, he heard of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. What you saw in people's faces coming across the country, Kesey said in a 1999 interview, there was a grief. Everyone in the United States felt it. Not so much that we had lost Kennedy, but we had lost a chance at a real, different, better, hipper, gentler world. So, he went on, we decided next year to go back and do the most American thing we could do, to travel across the country. I love to drive across the United States. Travel across the southern states, go to the World's Fair, and come back across just to experience the American landscape and heartscape. He also had a friend, Ken Babs, who had been a second lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps in Vietnam and just returned home. He thought a cross-country trip would be a way to help him unwind and adjust. And as things progressed, he realized that more and more people were coming with him, and his small station wagon just wasn't big enough. So he purchased a bus, a 1939 International Harvester school bus. The previous owners had installed beds and a kitchen. The whole Kesey family and their friends painted the bus with wild psychedelic colors and they called it Further because that's just where they were going. The driver of the bus would be 40-year-old Neil Cassidy. Neil was one of the Beats from the 1950s being friends with Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. He had been the basis for the character Dean Moriarty in the 1950 Kerouac novel On the Road. Now, it had been 15 years since he went on the road with Kerouac, and the thing was, not only was Cassidy usually on drugs, but he didn't even have a legitimate driver's license. They were all going to go to New York for the purpose of celebrating the publication of Kesey's novel, Sometimes a Great Notion, and to visit the 1964 World's Fair in New York. On the way, they would stop at various places and turn on as many people as they could by introducing them to psychedelic drugs. Now remember, LSD was not illegal in the United States at the time. Marijuana was illegal, however, so they were always in danger of being arrested. Now Ken thought boredom might be a problem on the trip from San Francisco to New York, so he had an idea to make a movie along the way. So he bought professional cameras and sound equipment and thought they would film the trip in sort of a road movie. Ken Babs described it like this. So the movie was this. We drive, we go to a place, then we take LSD, then we get out and do stuff and film it. Hmm, seems pretty easy. The 14 core members would be nicknamed the Merry Band of Pranksters which was later shortened to just Merry Pranksters. Everyone wore horizontal-striped shirts of bright colors that would look great on film. They also wore other items like crazy hats and such, and, and every day everyone would switch clothes. Now of the 14 original pranksters, I want to talk about one. Her name was Linda Breen. She was known by the nickname Anonymous. She was a 15-year-old girl from Calgary, Alberta, in Canada. Linda and her mother were at something called the Calgary Stampede, a yearly festival with rodeo exhibitions, live music, and that sort of thing. 
She was bored and not really looking forward to the camping trip her family was taking the following day, and then she saw the bus. It was nothing like she had ever seen before. All these young people with their striped shirts on, dancing around the bus. And after about 20 minutes of gazing, she asked, Can I get on? And the prankster said, Sure. They stayed in the area for a while, but as they were leaving, they were pulled over by the police. The police were now looking for the missing Linda. They had a picture of the girl, but it was an old high school picture, so they didn't recognize her. Linda actually looked over a policeman's shoulder and asked, Who are you looking for? Ken Kesey christened her with the name Anonymous. She said she felt safe with the pranksters, and no one ever tried to make a move on her, and she had a great time. Eventually, after four or five months, she returned home to finish high school. Anyway, the pranksters made it to New York and then returned to Los Angeles. When the trip was over, Ken Kesey was thinking about going back to his writing, but there was a problem. No one wanted the trip to end. Ken would throw goodbye parties and even build a bonfire to burn all the costumes, but the group had bonded and, well, they just all hung around. Ken's property turned into a large nightly party and it became a special place, the place to be at. People like Allen Ginsberg and Hunter S. Thompson showed up as well as Hell's Angels. Meanwhile, editing on all the footage they had shot was taking place. The problem with the film was, besides being very shaky, the sound was all messed up. It would play at fluctuated speeds, really fast, then really slow, so there was no way to sync the audio and the video. But every Saturday night, they would screen footage at Casey's home for all the pranksters. And more and more people began to show up to the point where the house was just too small, so they began renting halls. A group of musicians, who were friends of the pranksters, would show up and play. They were a band that called themselves the Warlocks. They would eventually change their name to the Grateful Dead and have pretty good success. What started out as a film screening turned into a multimedia party with music, pulsating lights, costumes, and of course, LSD. In the center of the room were large tubs of Kool-Aid, one spiked with LSD and the other, well, not. It was up to the individual as to which they drank. It was known as the acid test. And I'll remind you again, it was still legal. Things were going great, but that all changed on April 23, 1965. Ken Kesey and his friends were arrested for possession of marijuana in the town of La Honda, California. The newspapers read, Ken Kesey and 13 companions were jailed in a lightning raid by sheriff's officers in La Honda last night. Kesey, author of the top novels, Sometimes a Great Notion and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, was booked on charges of resisting arrest when he was battling deputy sheriffs. Ken would be sentenced to six months in jail to be served at the San Mateo County Jail in Redwood City, California. Along with that, he was given three years probation. If it was not that your record until now was clean, the judge told him, you'd be going to a state prison. When Kesey was asked about his sentence, he said, You walk in, you listen, you walk out. Just a few days after he was given his sentence, while out in bail, he was arrested again. He allegedly was smoking marijuana on the rooftop of Stuart Brand's Telegraph Hill home in San Francisco with Carol Adams. Carol was Jerry Garcia's girlfriend, known as Mountain Girl. 
Apparently, people in the building complained because Ken and Caroline were throwing gravel at passerbys after midnight. For this, he risked his three years probation. On February 3, 1966, Ken failed to show up in court and a warrant was soon issued. And then on February 7th, his truck was found, abandoned on an ocean cliffside road. An 18-page rambling letter was found inside that in part read, So I, Ken Casey, being of ahem, sound mind and body, do hereby leave the whole scene to Fay Corporation, cash the works, and buffo to run it. And it occurs to me here that nobody is going to believe this prank, and now it occurs to me that I like that even better. It seemed to be some weird suicide note that was very long, but it finishes with, Keep doing the test like we figured, and I'll see what I can do from this end. Got to be. A non-navigator cannot operate if he becomes the focus of a movement. Not enough chance for confusion. A few days later, the newspapers reported, Keezy in Mexico. Suicide note, a prank. It wasn't long before the government was trying to extradite him from Mexico. But they never did. Ken, however, seemed to miss the USA and in October showed up in San Francisco. Soon after, he disappeared again. The authorities said they were out to capture him. And they did so a few weeks later when the police pulled over his truck. He leaped from the truck, jumped a fence, ran through a dump, threw a group of kids playing baseball, and then finally surrendered. After a trial in December, in which the jury was deadlocked, he was given a second trial in April of 67, and that also ended in a deadlocked jury. The district attorney asked for a third trial. But before the third trial began, Ken Kesey changed his plea to no contest. The judge told him, You know, Mr. Kesey, that a contest plea is tantamount to a plea of guilty, and you are subject to all the penalties of a plea of guilty. The sentence could be six months to a $500 fine or both. In the end, he was ordered to serve 90 days in a county prison and given two years probation. It was less than he was originally given, so it worked out. While in prison, Ken would keep a journal of his experiences. He would publish that years later as Kesey's Jail Journal. At the same time this was all happening, a young journalist named Tom Wolfe began researching the pranksters. He did in-depth interviews with all the pranksters, watched all the film they had shot, and listened to all the audio they recorded. The book he published in 1968 was called The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, a book that has been described as faithful and essential in depicting the roots and growth of the hippie movement. But everything that had happened had changed Ken Kesey. After getting out of jail, he wasn't the same wild man that he had been the last few years. The problem he was having was, when meeting anyone, they expected the Ken Kesey from the electric Kool-Aid acid test, not the Ken Kesey he was now. Also, by 68, the hippie movement was mainstream. Drugs, rock and roll, and tie-dye were everywhere. Four years earlier, the pranksters were able to shock the world, but not so much anymore. He reportedly told his friends, I think it's time we graduate out of acid. It used to be Hell's Angels and the Bohemians, but now the son of a hardware store owner in Des Moines is asking for it. He said he wasn't totally giving up the drug, but said, This is not the thing that's happening anymore. 
Neil Cassidy, who was known as Sir Speed Limit during the bus trip, went downhill after the trip ended. He began acting very erratic in 1967. In 1968, he went to a wedding party in Mexico. That night it was cold and rainy, and he went for a walk along some railroad tracks wearing nothing but a t-shirt and jeans. He was found the next morning along the tracks in a coma. The man who found him carried him on his back to a local post office, and from there he was taken to the closest hospital. He died a few hours later on February 4th, four days short of his 42nd birthday. While the exact cause of Cassidy's death is unknown, he had taken an unknown quantity of secobarbital, a powerful barbiturate, before leaving the wedding party. For Ken, he returned home to Oregon with his family. They bought a small farm and parked the old bus in the yard. He became a farmer and was very well-liked in the community. Ken and Faye had three kids, Shannon, Zane, and Jed. He also had a daughter from another woman named Sunshine who also stayed on the farm. He loved his kids and made the place a fun environment for them all. Eventually, there were grandchildren as well. And some of the other pranksters lived in the area and they still stopped by to create films and perform music together. In 1963, a play version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest starring Kirk Douglas as Randall McMurphy and Gene Wilder as Billy Babbitt played on Broadway. Ken Kesey loved the production. Kurt Douglas had purchased the rights to the novel and was planning to star in a film version. He tried unsuccessfully for almost a decade to get it made. His son, Michael, took over and got the film into production. To Kurt's disappointment, he was deemed, at 60, too old to play McMurphy. Gene Hackman, James Kahn, Marlon Brando, and Burt Reynolds all turned down the role before a 38-year-old Jack Nicholson took the part. Ken Kesey was originally involved in the production, but hated the casting. He also hated the fact that the film wouldn't be from Chief Broden's point of view. He left the production and claims never to have seen the film. However, his wife Faye said later that her husband was generally supportive of the film and was pleased that it was made. He continued to write short autobiographical fiction, magazine articles, and children's books. In 1992, he wrote another major novel called Sailor's Song, his long-awaited book about Alaska. Sadly, in 1984, tragedy struck. Jed Kesey, the Kesey's 20-year-old son, was killed. He was a wrestler for the University of Oregon and was on his way to a match when the team's loaned van crashed after sliding off an icy highway. In 1997, Ken suffered a stroke. On October 25, 2001, he had surgery at Sacred Heart Medical Center in Eugene on his liver to remove a tumor. He never recovered and died of complications several weeks later on November 10, 2001 at the age of 66. He was survived by Faye's wife, one son, two daughters, and three grandchildren. A little bit before I go. I didn't get to spend as much time as I would have liked for the later years of Ken Kesey. I'm sorry, I know it seemed a little rushed, and I would have liked to talk more about all the pranksters, but you know, there just wasn't time. So, one more show for me to go. You know, I've been doing the show since 2015, so that's been, what, seven years? And you know, 
while I still have plenty of stories I would like to tell, the research for many of them is just too much. Often I find a subject I would like to know more about, but I just can't find enough information. And I just can't afford to buy all the books it would take, nor do I have time to read all these books. So in January, I'll start my film history podcast. And like I said before, I realize that there are many, many film podcasts out there. But most of them are just a couple of friends who watch a film and give their opinions without much research. Hey, I can go to the local tavern and hear people's opinions about the latest Marvel movie or Night of the Living Dead. Somebody's got to do some actual research, right? Anyway, now how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. I thank you for listening. If you want to say hi to me or tell me how wrong my story is or add a little information, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. You can use any of these platforms to say hi. And links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link at the Coffee with Jeff website. I want to thank my wife of 37 years for being my wife of 37 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to everybody who reposts this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, remain healthy, and I'll be back one last time in two weeks.